0: So Mark, chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, reading from the English Standard Version translation. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, Holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, And many such things you do. Let's pray. Father, even as we have just sung in this previous hymn about breaking the bread of life, we do pray that you would break open the word of God to us, the true bread of life, that we may gain your truth, understand your ways, be changed and transformed, that we may live lives that that properly, reflect the gospel of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. We would desire to do this. We would desire to have our, our hearts uh, uh, ever more changed, that we might be faithful disciples, that we might be those who could truly be light and salt to this generation. We ask this for the sake of the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, chapter 7 begins with another conflict that Jesus is having with the Pharisees and with the scribes. And in that connection, we need to take note of the mention of Jerusalem here because in several translations, this particular sentence reads as though Jerusalem is the source of both the scribes and the Pharisees while the ESV and some others seem to say that it's the scribes alone which are coming from Jerusalem. But in any case, the point is Jerusalem. Uh, there, the capital of Israel, the religious capital of uh, the people of God, uh, the city where God has a uh, desire that his name would dwell. There, from out of there, comes this mission of the scribes and the Pharisees to watch Jesus, to see everything he's doing with the intention of trying to find some way to destroy him. Isn't that ironic? Now, on this current occasion, Uh, we see this hostile group noticing, as they're watching Jesus and his disciples, that some of the disciples are eating with unwashed hands, uh, meaning to them that their hands were defiled. And as Mark explains in verses 3 and 4, all of the Jews followed this tradition, this tradition of the elders, uh, to make sure that they would do this ceremonial washing of the hands before eating and also every time they came from the marketplace and further, the ceremonial washing, including things like washing cups, washing pots, washing copper vessels, and even doing a ceremonial w- washing of their dining couches. I don't know exactly what dining couches are. If you've ever seen Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper, they're all standing on one side of the table as if a photograph is being taken. You don't see any dining Couches. So apparently, at the time of the Renaissance, they didn't know what dining couches were. But when you read the New Testament, you see again and again that they often reclined to eat. So dining couches were not like our kitchen table and chairs. They were, in fact, some kind of couch like thing that people actually would recline upon as they would eat their meals. Difficult for us to envision. In fact, that was the case. And even these things were supposed to be given some kind of ceremonial washing before Jewish people would would recline to eat. Now, so the question they put to Jesus is found in verse 5 when they notice the actions or the misactions of the disciples. They say, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now, these traditions of the elders were man-made regulations that had come from the rabbis. Uh, They had been developed to attempt to keep the people of God from breaking the law of God. And this all took place during this oral tradition period after the time of Malachi. And the design of these regulations was to put a... A hedge of protection around the law of God, and therefore a hedge of protection around the people of God, so that if you obeyed the man-made traditions, it would make sure that you didn't violate the law of God. That was the intent. And as some commentators have noted, the, the design or the purpose or the intent looked good. Let's make up some rules so that if people follow these rules precisely, they will never break God's law. But the effect, in fact, did not protect God's law, and the effect did not protect God's people because here's what happened with these man-made laws. The Mishnah, which is a collection of Jewish traditions, and we find this in the Talmud, this is what it says concerning this process of the oral tradition, the tradition of the elders. It is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict Scripture itself. In other words, the traditions of the rabbis, the man made traditions of the elders, had come to stand as more authoritative than the Word of God. And so Jesus brings the judgment of Scripture against the scribes and the Pharisees. He says that they are hypocrites who fulfill the judgment of the prophecy of Isaiah. This people honors me with their lips. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So, Jesus says, their worship is vain, it is useless. They have violated the true obedience of God, things which God has commanded. They have used their own traditions to actually nullify the very word of God. So the teaching of this passage is focused on, on, on Jesus judging and condemning this mishandling of the very Word of God. Uh, so that these rules, he's judging the fact that these rules, uh, the rabbinic understanding, the traditions, which are of human origin have come to rank ahead of the divine authority of the Word of God. In other words... We have a very significant example here, a very bad example of what Christians are never supposed to do. Uh, We have the example of a religious leadership nullifying the real authority, the real intent of the word of God by their man-made commandments. If you are paying attention as to what is happening in the Christian religious world today, you will begin to see how significant and relevant this is when we have pronouncements by major mainline denominations that it is against the spirit of Jesus Christ not to be inclusive, of those who have a different understanding of marriage than what you and I traditionally have had. It is against the very spirit of Jesus if you do not become inclusive of all those whose practices in terms of their sexuality is different than what perhaps you traditionally believed. You have denomination after denomination putting their edicts, their commandments, their doctrines, their teachings as though this is the true teaching of the Word of God or as though they must amend the teaching of the Word of God or they must displace the Word of God or their pronouncements rank higher than the Word of God and it is happening in an accelerated velocity within the so-called Christian world today. So overall, the lesson for us is this. We as followers of Christ must not do anything with the Word of God, which in any sense would demote its authority, but rather we owe to the Scriptures the same obedience we owe to Jesus Christ, since the Scriptures are the very Word of God. Now, so the debate here that Jesus is having with the, with the Pharisees, the scribes of the Pharisees, is very, very far-reaching. In fact, this debate is the center point of one of the most significant aspects of the Reformation, as we will see in just a few moments. But the point is this, that changing the rules of God in order to walk according to the traditions of men has the power to affect everything in the Christian life. And in this passage, we see three things which are really quite comprehensive of the Christian life. We see that that changing the rules of God will cancel the worship of God. We will see that changing the rules of God will cancel the lordship of God. And we will see that changing the rules of God will cancel the gospel of God. And that is the conflict, the controversy that Jesus is involved in in this passage, which Mark presents faithfully to us. Now, in the first place, how is it that changing the rules of God actually cancels the worship of God? of God? Well, that's the case that Jesus is making with the Pharisees. He focuses upon what their man-made traditions actually do to the worship of God, and he raises then the question of hypocrisy. He supports his judgment against them by quoting from the prophecy of Isaiah, and his point is that their worship, based upon their traditions, is hypocritical. He says in verse 6, this is People, honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now that's the very meaning of hypocrisy uh, when we speak one way but live another way. And so Jesus judges the Pharisees here to be hypocrites because they appear to be ultra concerned about what honors and exalts God as worship in, in, in terms of what their lips are going to utter, but inwardly, In their hearts, they're not lifting up God. They're not honoring and exalting God at all. Now, on the other side of it, in this exposure of hypocrisy, in terms of what Jesus says, we can see then what is actually necessary for true and God-honoring worship. True worship, then, requires a true match between the words which we would express and what is actually going on in the center of who we are as human beings, what's going on within our hearts. So when we are expressing with our lips what is truly within our hearts, when our hearts are truly honoring of God, truly oriented toward God, truly desiring to see God lifted up and and exalted, and our lips are expressing that, then we have that match which constitutes true worship. What that means, then, is true worship can never be a matter of following a pattern of rituals. It it can never be just behavior. Uh, It can't be just going through the motions. It can't be simply following a set of rules. What is necessary must be going on in the inner person towards God. The heart must be exalting God, praising God, honoring God as supreme over all, in addition to our speech. Only then do we have true worship. But then in verse 7, Jesus quotes Isaiah further to add his judgment, which then he gives in verse 8. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Now, in this judgment, Jesus is laying down a fundamental principle about genuine worship. In essence, he's saying this, you are not supposed to leave the commandment of God in order to follow the tradition of men because it is in scripture alone where we have what rightly regulates, what rightly legislates, and what rightly defines for us the true worship of God. In other words, that which defines godly worship is to be found in the teachings and the doctrines of God's own word and never in the inventions or the traditions or the commandments of human beings. Now, before we get into how this is articulated by Calvin at the time of the Reformation, I want you to stop and pause and think about this for a moment. The evangelical church of the last 30 years, the last three decades, has been all about innovations in worship. Worship has been designed to be seeker-sensitive. Worship has been designed to be consumer-oriented. Worship has been designed to be that which is entertaining of people, attractive to people. Worship has been designed along the lines of what is the lowest common denominator that we can drop to that can allow the the non-Christian to come in and feel comfortable. All of those innovations have been practiced by some of the largest, most notoriously famous churches in the United States. All in the name of Jesus Christ, supposedly. So I want us to pay attention to What is going on in this controversy and what Jesus has to say about worship and then how this was articulated at the time of the Reformation where the worship of God was crying out to be reformed because of all of the additions to worship, all of the traditions that had been added in the church as to how it was proper to worship God. So here's what Calvin says during the Reformation. He states this principle that God and God alone states what worship is very clearly in his commentary on this passage, quoting him. He says, We see the extraordinary insolence that is displayed by men as to the form and manner of worshiping God, for they are perpetually contriving new modes of worship. And when anyone wishes to be thought wiser than others, he displays this ingenuity on this subject. And then in analyzing the error of man-made traditions and worshiping God, Calvin goes on to say, God has laid down the manner in which he wishes that we should worship him and has included in his law the perfection of holiness. Yet a vast number of men, as if it were a light and trivial matter to obey God and to keep what he enjoins, collect for themselves on every hand many additions. Those who occupy places of authority bring forward their inventions for this purpose, as if they were in possession of something more perfect than the Word of God. And finally, Calvin gives Scripture's own teaching about worship in these words. This passage, the one we're looking at in Mark, this passage teaches us first that all modes of worship invented by men are displeasing to God, because he chooses that he alone shall be heard in order to train and instruct us in true godliness according to his own pleasure. So in this matter of worship, God alone is to be heard. Now it is central to the biblical understanding of worship, just as it was stated in the Protestant Reformation under Calvin, that worship must be according to to what God has commanded and God has revealed in the scriptures. Now, this principle is so important in the Protestant and and, and Reformation movement that we've actually given it a name. It is called the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship. It means that we are to worship God only as God has commanded, only as God has taught, only as, as God has instructed in his word, not according to what we think might be more effective or more entertaining or more insightful or more relevant. We are not to invent new ways to worship God. And I will say that, that in the history of, of, of good biblical worship since the time of the Reformation, This is what pastors have sought to do. This is what we have sought to do. Every Sunday we have sought to guide and instruct you in what is proper biblical worship. So our worship pattern has the form and the elements that the Bible and the Bible itself recognizes as the essential aspects of worship. Uh, and, And even to make this clear, our denomination has published a guide to worship, which is called the Directory of Worship. It's a biblical guide as to how to worship the people of God or to worship God. So in chapter 47, verse 9, it says this, The Bible teaches that the following are proper elements of worship service. Reading of the Holy Scriptures, singing of psalms and hymns, the offering of prayer, the preaching of the Word, The presentation of offerings, confessing the faith, and observing the sacraments, and on special occasions, taking oaths. Now, except for the taking of oaths, we have all the biblical elements in our worship service today, and on the 30th of April, God willing, as we uh, ordain and install new officers, they will be taking their vows, which are oaths, before God. All of this, the proper elements of worship. All of these things follow from the point that Jesus has made here, first of all. Uh, When we change the rules of God, we cancel the true worship of God, and therefore we must never change the the rules of God. We must always worship God according to his rules, commandments, teachings, and guidance. We must worship God according to Scripture and Scripture alone. Uh, The second thing that we find in this controversy about changing the rules of God is that when this takes place, it cancels the lordship of God. Uh, Changing the rules of God is a direct attack upon God's lordship over the lives of believers, over over our lives. Now, we've already been alerted to this. Uh, The Pharisees tell the traditions to be on the same level or even higher than the scriptures themselves. We quoted from the mission of that statement, it is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict scripture itself. That's exactly the indictment that Calvin makes against this kind of thing when he said that those who occupy places of authority bring forward their inventions for this purpose, as if they were in a possession of something more perfect than the word of the Lord. Now, that's exactly what happens. In in creating these traditions of how to understand and obey the law of God, the rabbis invented their own rules, which they held to become, which actually, in in teaching these rules of their own, they became absolute law. And, And in the absoluteness of their expression, they ranked higher than the actual authority of the perfect word of God. Now, the problem becomes obvious. If you and I are required to obey man-made laws and traditions on the basis that this is what it means to obey God's laws, then we've actually elevated the rules of man over the rules of God. Whenever religious authorities... exalt or establish or set up their rules and say this is exactly what you must believe in order to rightly believe the scriptures. This is exactly what you must obey in order to rightly obey God. When these things are in addition to what the scriptures teach, not we're not talking about that which faithfully represents what the Scripture teach. We're talking about those things that are added in addition to what the Scriptures teach. Then the authority of man has been raised above the authority of God, and the Christian is now subject to the lordship of man and not the lordship of Christ. So, when we are required to obey the traditions or laws or rules of men, as the proper way of giving obedience to God, then man's authority has now replaced God's authority. And, and that is what that Jesus judges that the Pharisees have done. They've replaced the authority of God. They've canceled God's lordship. And the example he gives is in verses 9 through 13 involving the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. And here we have that commandment versus the tradition of Corbin. Now, Corbin. In the Old Testament, the meaning of Corbin was giving something over to God. And the giving of something over to God was irrevocable. Uh, it was something that, that had the force of a vow before God, unbreakable. And so the tradition of the elders stated that if a man had any money or resources that he might have given to help out his parents, if instead he declared it to be Corban, then he was not permitted to do anything on behalf of his parents. Now, listen carefully. Uh, I, I, I check this out with Alfred Hedersheim, uh, the great Jewish Christian scholar on these things. It's not as though he actually had to give Corbin to God. It's not as though he actually had to give this to God so that it was no longer there for him to use. All he had to do was to declare it to be Corbin. And it was still available for him to use any way he wanted to, except it was Corbin with respect to his parents, and he could not then use it on behalf of his parents. Corbin has the meaning of banned and forbidden (coughs) as well as dedicated. Forbidden to the parents, dedicated to God, but he could still use it any way he pleased to use it. So God's law requiring us to honor our parents, a law so strong that if an Israelite ever reviled his parents, he was worthy of the death penalty, could be completely nullified by the traditions of men. A grown man could refuse to help out his needy parents if he simply declared that whatever I might have that might be used to help you is Corbin. And according to the traditions of the elders, he was never then allowed to help out his parents in any way whatsoever. He could still use it for himself, but he could never use it for his parents. So clearly the the traditions of men here were canceling the lordship of God. By following a tradition of men, a person was prohibited from actually obeying the laws of God. We also see a second implication of this. Uh, the tradition of the elders having this kind of authority meant that God's rules and God's word were never really enough to guide the people of God in living their lives before God. In other words, what the tradition of elders was really proclaiming is that God's word has never been enough. God's word has always needed to be supplemented and added to by the doctrines and commandments of men. Now, we have to see that this is a genuine slam against the actual doctrine of the Word of God in terms of what the Word of God says about itself. Uh, The Word of God teaches that it is entirely sufficient for faith and practice. The Word of God is entirely sufficient for the lives that we are supposed to live before our God. The Word of God enables us to Properly, and in every way, respect and obey the lordship of God. Well, we see this in what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So now think back to this. The apostle Paul was once a Pharisee meaning that as a Pharisee, he himself had been fully committed to the tradition of the elders. He had once believed and practiced uh, that thing of elevating the rules of men over the Word of God. He had practiced that idea as if the Word of God wasn't really enough. But now Paul, as an apostle, has this proper lordship of God view of the Scriptures, and since the Lord God has breathed out the Scriptures... Since they are his very words, they are enough and fully sufficient and fully profitable to make the man of God, as Paul quotes it, and the man of God is a technical term that applies to the one who is the teaching and shepherding elder within the church, or those who are, it has the power and profitability to make such men complete and equipped for every good work. So the Word of God doesn't need any extra doctrines added to it. The Word of God doesn't need any extra commandments added to it. It is entirely sufficient to accomplish what it's supposed to accomplish with respect to the people of God. It is entirely sufficient for faith and practice. But during the Reformation, and ever since, uh, this principle of God's lordship through the Scriptures has been attacked again and again. And it's especially under attack today when you have groups that call themselves Christian saying that in the spirit of the scriptures or in the spirit of Christ, uh, all of you folks need to become far more inclusive of those that you will call Christians, far more inclusive of behavior that you would call Christian behavior. Uh, if, if If you're not in with it, if you're not on the side of history, if you're not moving in this direction, then the claim is made that you are, in fact, disobedient to the spirit of Jesus Christ. You're disobedient to the best reading of the scriptures. So whether the commandments of men are laid down as harder rules or laid down as easier rules, less restrictive rules, more inclusive rules, their effect is to cancel the lordship of God and to replace his lordship with the lordship of men. Now, finally, out of this passage, we see that what is equally damaging to the canceling of the worship of God and the canceling of the lordship of God is that this is all to the point of canceling the gospel of God. This whole episode revolves around ceremonial washings, ceremonial defilement, what it means to be ceremonial, clean or unclean. The tradition of the elders had made this matter of hand-washing such an essential part of daily living that, that all the people were doing it. And it was designed to keep the people from becoming ceremonial unclean with the emphasis and the idea being that if you become ceremonially unclean and are doing things, you're sinning against God. Now, and because this Roman audience might not be familiar with all of these practices, Mark explains this with some additional words. He, he points out that the traditions required this proper hand washing before eating. Jesus' disciples weren't doing it. These rules involve this whole set of washings. You're supposed to cook. You're supposed to eat out of instruments, vessels that have been ceremonial cleaned. You're supposed to recline and eat on couches that have been ceremonially washed. All of this in order to keep yourself clean and undefiled. And if you did not keep yourself in this way, clean and undefiled, you were sinning against God. So the message that the Pharisees were preaching to the Jewish people was this. You must keep these traditions in order to be right with God. But also... What's implied with all of this is that the Pharisees' message was, and although all of this might be tedious, in fact, it's doable. If you're careful enough, you can do all of this. The oral tradition had set up all of these laws to protect you from disobeying the laws of God. And so the laws of God were almost impossible to keep, But we've given you a set of laws that you can keep, and if you keep these laws, then you've kept the laws of God. And if you keep these laws and therefore keep the laws of God, then you have established your own righteousness, which is necessary for you to be right with God. That was the whole message and preaching of the Pharisees, and of course we rightly call it legalism. Legalism. The conviction that we as human beings can have a path of rule-keeping that we can successfully perform that God will judge as counting us as righteous in His sight. The Pharisees were the most aggressive religious party in all of Israel. They were reaching the most people. They were persuading them that this was the way of being truly religious before God, but they were giving the people darkness rather than light, They were leading people down a path of condemnation rather than salvation from the judgment of God. There's no grace here. Only law. And even then, it was man-made laws on top of the law of God. So it's no wonder that Jesus condemned the Pharisees as making void the word of God. Then again, think about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle who in Philippians chapter 3 describes his testimony as having been a Pharisee. That was his former life. As a Pharisee, he had set out and accomplished this righteousness of his own based upon the law and the fulfilling of the Pharisaical interpretation of the law. But then he comes to Christ and he says that in the place of that self-earned righteousness... By faith he gained Christ and that in Christ by faith he gained a righteousness from God and imputed righteousness from God that made him truly and fully acceptable to God, which also then called upon Paul to surrender in every way, every reliance upon himself to establish his own righteousness. The teaching of Jesus then. Illustrated in the life of the Apostle Paul is that changing the rules of God, adding the commandments and the doctrines of men, cancels the gospel of God. All right, summing up. The worship of God as our calling, the lordship of God over our lives, the gospel of God as what saves us, these are the fundamentals of what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian is reflected in our worship. Being a Christian is reflected in the lordship of Jesus over our lives. Being a Christian is reflected in the fact that we live by the gospel, the accomplishment, perfection, the life, the righteousness of Jesus, and not our own. But those precious things are constantly under attack by those who would cancel the rules of God and put in their place the rules of men. How do we combat this? Listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 1. Blessed is a man who does not take the wicked for his guide, nor walk the road that sinners tread, nor take his seat among the scornful, but the law of the Lord is his delight, the law his meditation night and day. Our protection is in fact immersion in the word of God. And remember then the words of Jesus, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. God wants us to worship him. God wants us to live under his proper lordship. God wants us to live by the gospel. And to do so, we must live according to what God has said about his own word. It's his word above all. It's his word uniquely. And it's his word sufficiently that is to guide our lives as Christians. Immerse ourselves in the word of God that we may be freed from the commandments of men and find the true grace and freedom of Christ that he died to give to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, what we can gain out of the Gospels about Jesus, and just remind us again and again that it is accordance with your word that we are to live by the grace of your Gospel, under the wonderful Lordship of Jesus and not the Lordship of men, that we might worship you rightly. In Jesus' name, amen.